Was it fun? 100%. Was it incredibly stressful? 120%. We didn't have phones, so we couldn't call anyone, had no internet, couldn't research. So all you relied was like hard copy books. When you put into this bubble and all you care about is the food that you played out, you become so emotionally attached to that one thing. You don't think about anything else but cooking, but at the same time that your life depends on that plate of food. guys and welcome back to the Rachel J podcast. We're talking all things wellness and lifestyle to help you do life better. I'm your host, Rachel J. It's been so great seeing everyone enjoying the recent episodes. Again, thank you for tuning in and listening. I know some of you have been listening to the podcast for a while, but you may not be subscribed. So if you haven't already hit that subscribe button, it makes such a difference and it will help us grow the podcast for you so we can have more inspiring conversations and learn more from our amazing guests. This week, I'm very excited to be sitting down with the winner of MasterChef Australia 2017. She's also a TV host, cooking personality and entrepreneur. Welcome to the show, Diana Chen. Thank you, Rach. Thanks for being on the show. (laughs) I'm so excited for this chat. Thank you for having me. It's going to be so fun. Now, we actually have quite a few things in common and I'm not a celebrity chef, but I do love good food. Yes. Uh, And I was actually just in Singapore Mm -hmm. and the food is actually incredible. So we're going to talk more about food. Okay. But I feel like your journey over the last six years has been quite incredible. And you were originally working in finance before MasterChef. Mm -hmm. So I'm keen to track back more to there to start our conversation. So take me through your life pre-MasterChef. (laughs) What do we need to know about you and your childhood and your growing up years to know and understand who you are as a person today. Okay. Well, so I grew up in Malaysia um, in a place called uh, Johor Bahru, which is across the border from Singapore. So very familiar with obviously the whole of Malaysia and Singapore. Um, I've, I lived there for eight, eight, 18 years. And then when I was about 18 and a half, I moved over to Australia. Now, when I moved here, I didn't, I actually didn't want to move because like, you know, when you're growing up as a teenager, you just want to be there. You don't want to, you miss your friends, you miss your family. Um, So it was a little bit hard when I first moved here because I didn't really want to initially, you know, and then, and then I I started making friends. I assimilated well. Um, It was mum and dad wanted me to come over for um, my tertiary education. So I did um, accountancy, which I hated, um, <laughs> accounting and finance. Uh, so Bachelor of Commerce, majoring in accounting and finance, and purely because they wanted me to stay in Australia. So I was always, I think growing up as a kid, I always knew that I was somewhat creative. I was always into arts. I was, I loved architecture. Um, and I was more of that like sort of creative person. I was always trying to make things out of nothing. Um, however, I got pigeonholed, like a very typical Asian family. If you're not a doctor, you're not a lawyer, not an accountant, then what are you kind of thing. So, of course, I did it um, just to please them and finished my degree f- four years after. And then I was like, I still didn't want to stay. I was like, I want to go home. I, I I mean, I loved Australia. I had good friends. I enjoyed the environment. I loved, you know, the food and the culture and everything. But I still missed home very much. Um, However, I said, look, I'm going to give it a crack because life is all about opportunities and chances and I need to give myself a chance to see if I can stay here. So the day I I actually remember this day very clearly, I applied for a job, um... I got it. And then on that day, I also got... So I submitted my application like 29 days beforehand for my permanent residency. And at this time, it was quite hard to get PRs. Um, It was, uh, on average, maybe six months to a year to maybe even two or three years, depending on what kind of education you did. I got mine within 29 days on that day itself. So I I got the job offer, I got my PR, and I was like... What the hell? Wow. Is this is this my meant to be? Is it meant to be? Right. So there must be some form of whether you believe in fate or not. Like I thought this was this was it. Like it, it, I had to. This was my calling. Yeah. <laughs> like as much as I didn't want to stay, I was like, there's something. You know, there's a path that's been you know laid out for me, and I need to follow that. So I trusted my gut. 
Um, I also went and bought a lotto ticket, but I didn't win. Because <laughs> I was like, maybe... That would have been a great time to buy one, though, right? Because right? I was yeah. like, th- maybe third time lucky. Anyway, <laughs> I did it, right? I gave it a crack. Yeah. So I stayed on. Um, and, you know, whilst I enjoyed my job, um, I worked at one of the big fours, Deloitte. Um, so, you know, a couple of years later on and, uh, and I was there for four and a half years. And I was like, you know, I, lo- I love it, but it was all a little bit like same, same. You know, you go to work, nine to five job, you do the same thing. Yeah, of course, like it was cushy. You had, you know, you had a monthly paycheck. Um, And then while I started watching MasterChef when I first arrived, it was uh, 2006 I arrived, but 2009 um, was the first season of MasterChef and I kept watching it. I always loved cooking. So going back to like my childhood, my mum and my mum was always the one cooking. She was like, she worked, um, but she also cooked dinner for us. And whilst we ate really late, like nine o'clock most nights, um, she would always make sure that there was food on the table. We would sit down as a family and debrief about our day. And so I had that instilled in me. Like, you know, I didn't cook all that much growing up, but I prepared food for her. So I always would help out in the kitchen. Did so you do I'm, the thing where you like break the stems off the bean sprouts? Oh my God. <laughs> oh my God. How do you even know? Did you used to yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh my God. It's so painful. Like, painstaking. Like, what painful. a psychopath. Who I does know, that? Literally. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, the, the bean sprouts over there are like fattier and much crunchier. Yeah, so, yeah, but like sitting down with half a kilo of bean sprouts and plucking them. Who does that? Like, seriously. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, but things like that, I, I actually am quite grateful for because it was the basics and the fundamental of cooking. And it's, it's taught me a lot about food and the provenance of it and where it comes from and how to look for good produce. So I have always appreciated that and it's still in me up to this day. Um, yeah, so I watched the show MasterChef and I, for, I watched it religiously for like the first eight seasons. And I was like, I always wanted to do it, but I never had the guts to because I had a job and I was, you know, obviously studying at first and then had a job. And I was like, I always said to myself, like, I could probably do that because, you know, it started off very easy and then it kind of got harder and harder as the years progressed. And it, it, I always said to myself, I could do it. Maybe I could, why not? I never had the guts to. And then... Um, my friends actually said, hey, I think you need to join. And, and so my ex at that time actually did my application and put it through. It was like 60 pages or something. Wow. I know. And I'm like, you want, it, you want me to join? You go for it. <laughs> so he did it. And, um, and, and lo and behold, like next couple of days I got a call and they were like, oh, can you come in for an audition? I'm like, shit. <laughs> like, <laughs> oh, I'm so not ready for this. But I went in. And then the ne- then I got through, and the next day they were like, "Well, we want you to come and do your um, signature dish." I'm like, "God, I don't know what my signature dish is. Like, I just cook for fun. I cook for friends. I hosted a lot, but I never really figured out what I was truly good at." Mm. Anyway, concurred something up, like some pork belly dish, which I was like, "Well, judges like pork belly, right? <laughs> so okay, must be good. Some sweet and sticky sauce kind of thing." So. Did that, got through, and then they a few weeks later they said, "Oh well, you're you're through, and we'd like you to um, come on and and be in the chance to be in the show, and it's like the live auditions." And I was like, "Oh God!" So at this point, I actually said to the partners at work, I said to one of the partners, Sal, I said, "Look." So there's this show called MasterChef. It's a cooking show. And, you know, try telling that to like a, you know, someone truly like a corporate partner um, that probably doesn't have any time to watch any TV whatsoever. (laughs) But he actually surprised me and he turned around and was like, Diana, obviously I know the show. It's MasterChef. And like, you know, I probably hadn't realised how big it was as well. And he's like, go for it. Like I said, look, the thing is, I might be in it for three weeks or I might be in it for seven months because it goes for seven months. So I said, but I'm going to give it a crack, okay? And he's like, absolutely, go for it. True enough, I got through um, and seven months went on. <laughs> like I came out the other side. It's so crazy. I mean, to go from, I feel like, talking about your background in corporate finance is just such a, almost like a 180 degree turnaround from, from yeah. cooking and MasterChef and, and yeah. all that kind of stuff. And, and you, you know, you took a sabbatical, I guess, to, yes. to do the show. And I think 
you know, maybe people don't talk about the behind the scenes of doing a reality show as well. <laughs> and and like you said, MasterChef is actually, it's one of the biggest reality television shows in Australia, if, yeah, not, if not the biggest. So let's kind of go behind the scenes and kind of peel back the curtain and take me through your MasterChef journey because I think especially for people listening, they don't really know what goes on behind the scenes of a show, you know, we we see the the finished product and it's yeah. all amazing, but it's it's pretty high pressure. It's yeah. you know, all that kind of stuff. So, tell me about because it was obviously seven months. Mm. What was that like, and and was it what you expected? Mm. To be honest, I had very, I had no expectations. I think that was probably one of my. Um, biggest assets going in because some people went in with a preconceived idea of what the show is going to be like, what they would get out of it and what they expected. Whereas I went in just very blasé. I mean, heck, I did it because people dared me to do it. So I, and I think that's kind of like my nature. Um, if people say you can't do it, I would definitely do it. <laughs> so if, you do, if you say I can't do something, I'd be like, Oh, no, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to do it. Yeah. So I think I went in with that mindset. Um, in terms of did I enjoy it? Absolutely loved it. Um, would I do it again? Possibly not. Really? <laughs> I mean, depends. Yeah. It really depends. There's so many things. I, I've been out for six years. Yeah. I've got I've got a whole career based off Around it. But it, you yes. know, so it's it just is very it's very hard for me to go back and and like give up another seven months, right? But. Um, was it fun? 100%. Was it incredibly stressful? 120%. It was so stressful. Like, it's so funny because when you're put into this bubble and all you care about is the food that you played up, you become so emotionally attached to that one thing. You, um, you don't think about anything else but cooking. But at the same time, that your life depends on that plate of food. Yeah. It's bizarre. It's a weird feeling. So behind the scenes, we did a lot of like, you know, a lot of like research. We didn't have phones, so we couldn't call anyone, uh, had no internet, couldn't research. So all you relied was like hard copy books, right? So we did a lot of research. We cooked a lot in the house. Um, it was a good camaraderie like with all the contestants. There were 24 of us living under this one roof, which can be daunting at times and it, you have no personal space as well. Um, but you learn to live with it. It was like being in camp, yeah. really. Um, and you think about it as, you, I think you never, I never saw it as me being there for seven months. I always saw it as, let's take it one week at a time. Let's see how we go. There's hurdles along the way. So let's just pass that first before jumping to the next step. So I think different people approach it differently. A lot of people quit their jobs and went and did like cookery school or whatever just to be in the competition. I never did any of that. Um, so I think it depends on how much pressure you put on yourself. Don't get me wrong. Last four weeks of the competition, I put so much pressure on myself because, because purely because, not because I wanted to win, but because I was, well, I mean, yes, partly because of that, but it was more that I was like more angry that I was, I've been away for six months, that I've got one more month to go. I have to bloody win this thing yeah. because it's like time. For yeah. me, time is money, right? Like, yeah. so, like, you know, for me, I just thought it's a process. Let's go through it. Let's strategize um, and let's just win this bloody thing. Oh my goodness. So, yeah, like seven months of that, it's grueling, but at the same time, it's fun. I mean, there's, we get some of the best access to some of the best chefs around the world. Like they come in and they, there's a lot that goes on behind the scenes that people don't know. So in terms of like training... Um, and that's why there's like a little bit of disparity between like the professional chefs that train and, and, and have done the hard yards and then we come in and we go, oh yeah, we're working <laughs> you know, in some fancy <laughs> kitchen. But it's because of that. Like we do, we get seven months of intensive training. And whilst that's not like cookery school, I grant it, but we do also get exposure very quickly, very fast, right? And, um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's a real, it's actually a real treat to be able to get that opportunity. Yeah, like it's a really unique experience and be, and like you said being in it is such a almost like a intense bubble where you're just living and breathing that the whole time where where I guess yes if you were doing it outside it would be a different experience yeah, altogether, right? Totally. And it's, it's like it's almost like a not to say it's a crush course, but it is an intensive course in becoming a professional chef essentially, yeah. right? Yeah. So 
I'm sure, I imagine there would have been many challenging times during that seven months, both professionally in the kitchen, but also personally as well. And so I'm interested to know what is the biggest thing that you learned about yourself yeah. going through your MasterChef journey? Yeah. I think I learned, and this is going back to where what I did prior to being on MasterChef um, in the corporate career, with being in like somewhere like a big four firm, you get a lot of training. Um, you have consistency in work and you have diligence. You have like, you have, you have a checklist. You work off a checklist. There's always a process. And I took a lot of that subconsciously. Not, not at that time I probably wasn't thinking, mm. but I was always like, checklist, what do I have to do? And I think that kind of helped me. I, um, I've, one thing I learned was also I valued sleep so much. <laughs> like yeah. a lot of people didn't sleep and rest that well. I actually, we had a gym in the house. So I made sure that, you know, at least like do four or five days of workout because it's there. And whilst we were really tired, I just made sure that I had to do that. So I tried to keep that routine that I used to have, even though I was in this like boot camp kind of thing. So I think that kind of helped me as well. Like, knowing that I, I needed to have a set set uh, routine and and do, do things a certain way um, that definitely helped me through the whole process. Yeah, so having that structure and bringing it through, it's, it's I guess, having a framework for how you live regardless of what the circumstances are. Totally. Right? What, you, what you're moving through. Yeah, amazing. So I feel like... Working at Deloitte, for example, it's a, it's a corporate job, but it's a fairly anonymous job in some ways, right? Mm. They're, you're not really front-facing or in the public eye per se. And I think that it's interesting the juxtaposition between finance and then becoming, you know, MasterChef winner and then working more in the field of the media and, and mm. appearances and all that kind of stuff. So what has been the most challenging thing for you going from someone who has worked in a fairly, I guess, not so front-facing role mm. to being in the public space and being known. Yep. Um, I think it comes with experience. So I must say, like, six years out, I am so different and so far from where I was six years ago. When I first came out of MasterChef, I was like a headless truck. <laughs> like, the, literally, you get put in this bubble for seven months and you don't have your phones, it's, you know... And then you, you, you get out into the real world back again and it's like, hey, here's your phone. It's like Stockholm Syndrome, really bizarre. And um, you, you slowly start to learn like maybe you didn't need a lot of things in your life that you had before. Maybe you didn't need, like you just need to hone in and focus. So I think I became sort of quite focused on what I wanted. Um, and also I think when, when I want, I was pulled in so many directions. And given my Malaysian background, I was doing a lot of work overseas as well. So I slowly learned to say no to things, that I didn't have to say yes, that everything was going to be there at the start. But then, you know, you've got one year to capitalise and then after that, there's so many other winners. Like, what are we, season 15, 16 or whatever it is now. Like, you know, there's there's so many other people that will come after you. So it's how you make the most out of that one year. That was my thing, right? Um in terms of media, it was really hard at the start. Like, I think what there's no better way to learn than being on the master, in the MasterChef kitchen and you have five cameras pointing at you and, you, and I learned very quickly what to say, what not to say on camera. <laughs> <laughs> you learn the hard way. But then, but then, you know, I think that's part of the training. But then coming out of it and you're, you're left to your own devices, that was, that was actually quite daunting. Um, I would say that watching myself back now, like six years ago, being on telly, is, I was so different. I still don't like my voice. I still hate listening to my voice, but I think that's never going to change. Um, however, I think I present differently to how I did before and it just comes with time. Yeah. It really does. It's experience. And I think that's the most valuable thing you'll learn in life, right? Experience. Yeah, it's actually... As you get older. Going through it, yeah. doing it, and then you learn, like you said, what, what to you say. You learn the hard way. way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> that's the best way to learn sometimes, yeah. I feel like. Now, if there was something that you would like people to know about you that they don't already know about you, because I feel like also being a public figure... Your life is out there. People mm. know a lot of things about you. Yeah. What would it be what, if there was something that, that they don't already know about you? Yeah. I think people think that I am... Um, I never... I like my life to actually be quite private. 
Um, and I think maybe people don't see this side of me a lot in... Like, my social media is actually very... I, I would say, like, either professional. I do give a bit of, like, my personal life, but not too much. I don't overshare because pure... And it's not because I feel ashamed or or I, didn't, I don't want to share my weaknesses or anything. It's just... It's a personal choice because I feel... I feel like I like that bit of normality. Whilst I, I am a public figure, not, not, not so big, but I don't want everyone to know every single detail of my life purely because I just like that privacy. So I think, yeah, I think people sometimes think that, oh, you didn't share this. Oh, I never saw that. But it's, you know, it's because I never said anything and I didn't want to. I don't, I don't want to. So um, that's, that's one of the things. And um, I guess people maybe... I love I love my quiet time. I love my old friendships, um, and I still nurture them. So I'm still very close to, you know, fr- friends, and I love family. Um, you know, whilst I don't post much about family on social media, I do have family time all the time. Yeah, I think that's really interesting because I do feel like with social media, it's almost expected that you will show everything on social media and and obviously yeah. we all do it right we look at someone's profile and we think that's their life and that's everything of their life yeah. and you know and but I really like that you have made a conscious decision to mm. keep those things private and I'm very similar to you where where I feel like front-facing work like yeah. what you do yeah it's kind of, that's different. It's different. People to, know what you do anyway. Right, exactly. So, so it's, it's, it's different to your personal life. Yeah. Now, what would be your best suggestion for people who are currently working in a job that maybe isn't their passion like mm. you were, but are afraid to take that leap or perhaps just afraid to even pursue or explore, yeah. you know, yeah. their passion? What would you say to them? Well, I would always like, I think for me, it's you have to ask yourself if you want to do this, whatever you're doing whatever it might be, whether you're in a corporate job, whether you're, you're a chef, whether you're um, you know, an artist or whatever, and, and you're wanting to do something completely different, whether you want to do that for the rest of your life. For me, I did ask myself that <laughs> at that time. And I actually knew because, you know, deep down, deep down inside, if it's your passion or not, I cannot even tell you how much I love what I do now. Is it tiring? 100%. I'm constantly tired, but I love it. So it doesn't make it feel like work. And I would that's my first question. I would say, do you like your job enough to do it for the rest of your life? And it doesn't have to be the rest of your life. For the next 10 years, let's just say. Like, can you push through the next 10 years doing what you do? If yes, then stick to it. If, if no, or if you, you know, tithering and like thinking maybe, that it's always... It, it's no, there's no harm in putting one foot out the door and trying to explore. You don't have to commit fully. You can just start small. And I think that's the, my, my, my take on things. Just start small. I've done so many things where I'm like, oh, maybe I'll do this. But then I'm like, oh, I don't like it. Come back. Yeah. You know, so it's a lot of people just go full blown. I'm going to commit. And that's also good. Go gung ho, like, you know, and you really have to, back yourself and and that's fine and also depends on whether there's a financial circumstance behind it you know um whether whether you're pumping lots of money into it that's you know like some people just say oh I want to open a restaurant but have zero idea about running a business or opening a restaurant per se um like I mean perfect example some chefs go oh I'm going to open something but have no idea about how to handle the accounts or suppliers all that sort of stuff so there's a whole lot of admin that goes on behind so I'd say just go and learn all that stuff and make sure you have a solid foundation. Or if you have the money, hire the right people because you're only as good as the team you have, right? Yeah. Yeah. So it's taking those small steps and you don't you don't have to go all in to begin. Just kind of test the waters maybe a little yeah. bit. And just test see, the waters. Just see how you feel. Or if yeah, or or get the right people the right to people. back you. Yeah. Because it's it's so important like having the having the right direction, having good mentorship. Um, people to tell you experiences, their experiences, like so many people that you talk to and you, you learn so much from what they say as well because they'll tell you, oh, don't do this or do this because I've done it before. Yeah, it's it's like getting a blueprint of someone who's walked yeah. the path. Yes. So it's a shortcut for you really, yeah. essentially. Amazing. So 
This is one of the things that I feel like we have in common because, like I said before, I've, ju- I've just visited uh, Singapore. I've visited both Malaysia and Singapore. Mm. I haven't been to Malaysia for a very long time, but I just got back from Singapore. And I have heard you say that in some, another interview, I feel like I've heard you say that culturally you don't think that there's that much difference between Malaysia and Australia. And I, I mean, I've never lived in Malaysia, but I'm, I'm interested to know what you find about Malaysia and Australia to be similar and what is different about the two two cultures. Because off the offset, I kind of, I almost, I, f- I feel like Singapore and Melbourne mm. can almost, they're very easy cities mm. to live in mm-hmm. and they're efficient. Singapore is especially very efficient. Mm-hmm. But what do you find to be similar and different about Malaysia? Yeah, I think oh, I think the main thing would be like the, the language. There's no language barrier. Like anyone in Malaysia can speak English. So coming over from Malaysia, it's never going to be an issue, right? Unless you choose not to speak English. Um, so that's one. Culturally, obviously, there's definitely differences. Um, however, there's, there's, I mean, Malaysia's, um, you know, a, a d- developed nation, so they have you know e- everything that you have here: trains, buses, like you know proper roads and stuff. You have it there. So in terms of uh, geographically, I think we're quite similar. Um, in terms of food, I think in more so, I can say this in the recent oh, I'd say ten years, we have such a big Asian culture in Australia, especially here in Melbourne, Sydney, and um, Queensland. I think on on the eastern states, we have so many restaurants that are so focused on Asian or Southeast Asian food um, specifically. So in terms of the food culture, I think we have it quite similar. Um, Yes, it may not be 100% authentic or the same, but it's never probably ever going to be. But we are very close to it. And I think... For people moving across from Malaysia or Singapore coming into, um, you know, these states, I think it's going to be so easy to find, you know, find their feet. Uh, yeah, I think I think in terms of like the food culturally, we are so lucky, and uh, and I've noticed this more so in the last ten years, where you have, you know, a lot of similarities. I think the eastern states, um, M- Melbourne, Sydney, Brisbane included all have very good Southeast Asian food offerings. So I think coming here from like a country like Singapore, Malaysia, or even Indonesia, Thailand, Vietnam, I think we have such a big culture here in terms of the food and the cuisine. So culturally, it shouldn't be an issue. Yeah, I feel like Melbourne especially, I've definitely heard people say this, Melbourne mm. has some of the, the best food. In that, totally. You know, and from so many different cultures, like you said. Do you know what? Recently, I went to uh, Darwin, I think yes. maybe two months ago. Oh my god! Honestly, I went to the market there, um, Rapid Creek Markets, and the produce is no different from what you get back back home. Yeah. Um, and I was blown away. I was like, "What? You find this here? Like soursops and like um, chumpadas and like all these fruits, these exotic fruits." Um, and it was just amazing. It's always amazing to see what we have here in Australia because we actually, like, the north is actually so close. It's closer to Asia than we are, you know, down to Melbourne. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember going to Darwin and that was one of the things that surprised me so much about right? the city is the, 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 those market stalls, the food, yeah. and just the fact that it was so similar. And, and we're going to talk about this anyway, so this is a good segue in, but they have such good luxa there. yes. <laughs> they do laksa so well and it was so surprising to me. And, and like you said, all the tropical fruits and everything, it was amazing. My God, they love it. They even have a laksa festival. I know, I heard about this and I was like, this is insane. How have I not gone to this laksa I, I was actually a judge for the laksa Were festival you? in 2019. How was it? It was, it was wild. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had like something like 36 of... It was ridiculous. Something like in... in more than more than thirty bowls of laksa, definitely. In how long? How many? In one seating. What? I literally wanted to, but it was laksa. They take it to the next level. It's laksa flavored anything. Laksa flavored smoothie, ice cream, <laughs> um, chocolate. Like so, they put the flavors of laksa into everything. So. Yeah, and the whole city gets behind it. Everybody loves it. It's like this big. It's it's crazy. It's, it's wild. The best thing, way to put it is wild. It's like, you would not get this even in Malaysia. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I recently heard about this Luxor Festival. This is just insane. Mm. I mean, so 
Luxo, the reason why I'm talking about Luxo is because it's literally my favourite food to eat. Oh, really? And yes. I'll and, bring you some next time. Oh, good. I'm so <laughs> excited. And I, and I know a lot of people in Australia, Melbourne specifically, mm. like it here as well. And like we just said, Darwin has amazing Luxo. And I just got back from Singapore and even on the plane home they served me Luxo mm. as well. And it was amazing. I was so surprised that it was good on the plane. Yeah. So then from coming home, I've had Luxo a couple of times since I've gotten home. And now I just think I'm not quite, I know it just doesn't quite hit the same as when it's, when you're having it over, yeah, there. over there. So tell me what the key is mm. to a really good laksa. I think the key to a really good laksa is really time. You got to cook the broth out. Um, I mean, and, and the thing about laksa is there's so many different kinds of laksa as well. Here in Australia, I think we focus mainly on the one which is the curry laksa, which is the one with like the coconut base. Right, yes. My favourite is actually Assam laksa, which is Penang the tamarind. One. Yeah, the yeah. tamarind base. So, and then in Malaysia, you've got the ones that are mixed both um, the coconut and the tamarind. So there's like nine different types of luxes, so many. I think the key to it is definitely um, using, if you're doing a fish-based luxa, is having, is the care, is the time. Luxa takes time. It takes hours to boil that broth, to develop the flavours. Um, there's a lot of places that have shortcuts. They use MSG and there's nothing wrong with MSG. You know, I'm, I'm in the food industry, I get it. Um, but I think if you're making something from scratch and at home, I often put a lot of care into it. And I think that's why um, the luxes that you get outside that you pay, I don't know, what's the price of luxa? 12 14 $16. It's probably worth $30 in yeah. reality if you were to make it properly. Because there's it's something that you have to, you know, it's say like you make like, Asam laksa, for example, you got to boil the bones and that takes like a few hours for the bones and the flavour to develop into the water itself. And then you got to sit there and pull the fish apart, make sure that there's no bones that go back into the broth. So it's like all this time and effort that do you think actually commercially they people do would that. do it, yeah. you know? So I think um, that's the key. The care that's taken and the the time. You're so right. I, I have attempted to make it only once myself because my mum my mum talked me through the recipe <laughs> and it took me hours to make, like you said, because I was making the the stock from scratch, and then it tasted like shit. So then <laughs> I decided I'm going to leave it to the but there are, but there are <laughs> shortcuts. Like I think you can always like you know things like I think. When people start to cook and they realise, oh, okay, maybe, you know, say you're making a batch of paste, like curry paste, for example, why not make a big batch, freeze it? Because all these things can be like done in advance. Then the next time you make it, it is not such a slog. So that's what I always say to people, like, you know, there's always these tips and tricks to how you can make your life easier when you're cooking. That's what I got to do. I've, yeah. been, I, I've never attempted it since then. I was so traumatised. I was like, I'll just leave it do to it the again. people. Do it again. I think you'll be fine. <laughs> you can give me a call next time. Okay, okay. We'll go for Luxa. I'm excited about that. Um, now, I've heard you talk about diversity. You were just talking about it before in terms of food and culture. But I'm interested to hear your perspective on diversity, inclusion, representation in the media because now you've been working in the media mm. space for a long time. And, you know, it's, it's very cool for people like me who do also work in the space to see people who are of colour mm. and diverse faces in the public space. So what have you noticed in terms of diversity mm. and representation working more in this, in yep. this field? Yeah, I think, um, I mean, if you, it's very simple. Oh, turn on the telly and you watch like, you know, channel 7, 8, 9, and you, uh, channel 7, 9 or 10 or whatever, the mainstream ones, and, and you, you don't often see people of colour. It's true. It's very true. Australia is still very far from inclusion. Um, but it's not that they're not trying. I think it's just that they're not... It's a gener I always say it's a generational thing. I don't actually blame this generation for not understanding how to assimilate other, you know, people of colour. Um, are they trying? Yes, 100%. A show like MasterChef is the perfect example. That show is so inclusive and that's what I love about it. There's people from all different walks of life, different backgrounds, and they actually... I mean, like, look at me. I'm like Chinese, Malaysian, a Malaysian, and I won the show. Like, you know, th th that's a perfect example of how they can include people. Um, have I ever experienced any sort of racism, you know, 
gender inequality? Um, no, I th- n- not personally, but I do feel that um, I do feel like there is space for us to work on that um, purely because a lot of my peers would have experienced it as well. So I'm, I, you know, I can't, you know, speak on on my behalf, but I'll speak on their behalf. That I think we we all should, yeah, definitely um, be more aware and just, as I said, it's also a generational thing. So I don't truly blame them, but I think we just need to be more conscious of that. But also not conscious to a point where you're just doing it for the sake of doing it. Yeah, Because there's nothing yes. worse. It's like the token. Yes. It's like, forget it. <laughs> like, yes. don't, don't put the token Indian in that show, you yeah. know, just because you feel like they need to be included. Like, don't do it because of that. Do it because they're good at their job. Do it because they, they know what they're doing and because they represent a culture that you, you know, that, that is, is what, what, it, what they stand for and, and that's what you want. Yeah, I yeah. love that. I love that. And, and I've worked in this space for a very long time and I agree. I, I don't think that there's necessarily... It has come such a long way 100%. from, you know, 10, 15 yes. years ago. And it's not that there's not, not a lack of trying to improve. I feel that, again, you just don't want it to be to- tokenism. You yeah. Know? And, and for the sake of reaching a diversity quota, basically. Yeah. Um, but it is really nice to see, you know, people like you who are doing amazing things in the space where it almost feels like even by default, you might not even know that you are a role model for other people. You know, little girls watching MasterChef will have seen you and go, oh, I can actually do that yeah. because I've seen someone who looks like me yeah. that is doing the same <laughs> thing. So I think it's yeah. very, very cool. One of the things that you do, aside from, you do plenty of things outside of your MasterChef mm. phase, but you're also a really savvy businesswoman, you know, and you've branched <laughs> out, you've created a whole bunch of different things since yeah. leaving the show and restaurants, food products, and you've got this collaboration with Golden Walk and yep. you're working on the expansion into Asia, right? Yep. So talk to me about that because I imagine rolling something out like that in Australia is one thing, but then expanding into a yeah. different market is completely a different thing. So Talk me through that and what's been the most challenging yeah. part of that. Yeah. Um, so we started the, um, the, the, the Golden Walk brand um, six years ago. So it all kind of happened very organically. I met the, I met the family. They're a beautiful um, Indonesian family and they've been in the business for 40 years. 42 now, I think. Yeah, and they, yeah, they sort of approached me. We met, we met at a charity event and they said, hey, next year is going to be our 40-year 40, 40 anniversary. Would you like to be involved as, you know, and, and endorse the brand? And we'd like to create a range of dumplings perhaps under the Golden Walk banner. I said, sure, why let, 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 let's have a go. And, you know, we trialled and, and recipe tested a lot and researched a lot and then finally got the product. And then it was a little bit, you know, um, at the start, we it was very sort of, it's hard to sell to like Coles and Woolworths because they're such a, they dominate the market, you know. You think about the two major supermarkets in Australia, that's them, right, and they have, every say in what goes into the shelves and what doesn't go into shelves. So we worked a lot on that and we finally made that relationship and we, um, I was lucky because they already had their products in under a different name. Um, And so putting in another product um, but under the same company wasn't too hard. The, The hardest part was sustaining it. So you can always get your product in. That's one thing. That's one hurdle. But the other hurdle is to sustain it, to make sure that the quality and consistency, and this is why I think like those are the two biggest things for me in life in general, is to keep up that consistency in everything you do. And that was the main thing to to sort of make sure that that would go on for years to come. Touch wood. <laughs> it's been six years, so, so some, we must be doing something right. Like the, the, you know, people go in and it's like a staple product. So people, you know, a lot of people buy my dumplings and they they don't realize it's me. They're like, "Hey, you look so familiar." oh, you're that girl in that box of dumplings that we have in our freezer. So, you know, it makes me so happy to hear that because we've created a product that people love and um, the, the general public love, you know. It may not be everyone's favourite, but it's, you know, 80% of the market or whatever it might be. Um, and so we're very happy for that. Now, coming into Asia is a whole 
different field altogether. It's a beast. Asia is a beast. Um, I'm actually moving to Singapore next year. Are you? Yeah. Oh my God, I'm so excited yeah, for you. So, um, so I think it's going to help me being closer there. Yes. And um, and my partner's moving over there as well. So like it all kind of works I'm out. I'm going to come and visit you. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. And you can, I can take you all to all the nice all the places, places to eat. Yeah, all the, all the hawker stalls. All the hawker stalls. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, so yeah, once we go there, I think it's going to give us a bit more flexibility in terms of Think about the amount of super... It's not dominated by Coles or Woolworths. It is, you know, you've got big, big, big chains of supermarkets all across Indonesia, Malaysia, Singapore, like, you know, even even going to Thailand and then possibly even into India and China. But there's such a big market. The hurdle is obviously um, the procurement. Um, I think at the moment, you know, we're sort of like finding our feet with like the... The, the whole setup of everything. Lucky for me, I don't deal with that sort of stuff. Operationally, um, the company, actually the third-party company, Markmore actually deals with all of that. So I'm very lucky. Um, however, like they know, because they've worked with me for so long, that they keep me in the loop and they know that I won't put a product out there unless I'm satisfied. So I think that's just kind of like the relationship I have with them. Um, so yeah, hopefully by next year we can start producing some things and the limitation that we have is going to expand. So we won't have that sort of limitation. We can start creating things because one, first of all, labour is cheaper. So we can actually have handmade products. Because at the moment we're doing all through machine machinery, um, purely up from a cost perspective, but we can start doing things that are more handmade, more bespoke, more gourmet kind of things. Yeah, oh my goodness, that'll be so exciting. Yeah. And I feel like too, like you said, yes, there won't be any limits to, especially in the Asian market, I feel like no. there'll be no limits to no. what you can create. Really. It doesn't have to be, dump, like it won't, it, it won't just be dumplings. We can start doing All different yeah, sauces, noodles, you know, Amazing. pre-packaged stuff, um, which are good quality. Yeah. That's the main thing for me. It has to be good. It has to be good enough that, yes, it might not be as good as a home-cooked meal or it might not be as good as... But it could be as good as takeaway. Yeah. Or it could be as good as going to a hawker centre. That's what you, I want. And if you don't cook, that's the thing. Like like someone like me mm. who doesn't really spend a lot of time cooking, these kind of things will be perfect. Yeah. Because convenient, tastes good, yeah. good quality, amazing. That's it. Yeah. So good. Now, I'm interested to know because you have... Obviously, you love food and love to eat food like me. Mm-hmm. How do you actually balance loving food, loving to eat food... Oh God. ..and your health and wellness <laughs> routine? <laughs> oh, well. Um, yeah, that's a, that's a constant battle. It's a constant struggle, actually. Um, so I, I've got a routine of three days of weights weight training, two days of Pilates, and then I try and somehow in there fit in like a day of cardio. I should do more cardio, but I don't. But um, I, I think definitely the, 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 the weight training definitely helps a lot. So I do have got a personal trainer. Um, people think I eat like ridiculous amounts, which I do and I don't. I'm quite cautious with what I eat. I actually have... so. I always say this, I'm quite open. I, I have very healthy food at home unless I have a dinner party and then I go all out because I'm so bougie. Like I love creating like beautiful food for people because I'm a feeder and I'm a, I love to nurture. But when when it's just me and my my boyfriend at home, we we have very simple food, to be honest. We just have rice paper rolls. <laughs> I love like, rice paper rolls. Like three days a week, we have rice paper rolls, either pork and prawn, fi- like steamed fish or like, um, yeah, like, roast pork, whatever, whatever it could be. So we'll mix it up and we'll just have like, and then it'll be this massive bowl of herbs, which we will get through quite easily. So it's like a salad really with a little bit of carbs um, and protein. So we do that quite often and it's actually super healthy and we make like nook mum. So it's like, it's just, it's simple and healthy and delicious. So I, I do that most nights of the week. Um, and then we do eat out a lot as well. So it's kind of like that balance. I think the main thing is the alcohol, like <laughs> making sure that you don't drink too Welcome much. Welcome to Australia. I feel right? like that's an Australian thing. Right? In Malaysia, they don't drink much, do they? Ooh. Do they? Ah, uh, depends on what circles you hang yeah, out right. with. I think I, okay. I think they do drink um, not so much wine, but they do drink like hard liquor. 
You know, like they do drink like lots of whiskeys and gins. There's loads of gin bars over there. I mean, alcohol is, I don't think it's, it's a, it, it depends on where you come from. I think it depends on the person, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, like my dad loves, loves, loves a, a wine <laughs> or two or a bottle um, even. Uh, so, yeah, I, I guess it depends. But, yeah, I, I, yeah, for me it's just, it's balance. Like if I put my jeans on and it feels a bit tight, I know, okay, <laughs> Time to pull back and time to stop eating that like fatty carbonara or too much of pasta or, or noodles or whatever. So, yeah, I, I kind of like, that's kind of like my balance. Um, but I'm never too harsh on myself. I never diet. I try and get as much sleep as I can, at least eight hours a day and drink lots of water. Amazing. And sometimes I fast. Yeah. So sometimes I just do a four, fasting. Yeah, 14 yeah. hour fast. Um, my boyfriend's hardcore. He'll do three days of just water fast. Yeah. Um, well, well it's good. I, it resets the body. Yeah, and, yeah. I guess living with me as well. <laughs> like, <laughs> He's I like, need to after all I'm that over food. it. I'm eating. Like <laughs> last night, I think he had um, like what do you have for dessert? He goes through phases, and he had like cottage cheese, honey, and cherries, and I'm like, ugh, <laughs> why? <laughs> what a nice combination. Like, I was like, I'll have, well, it's protein, right? So yeah. I was like, oh God. <laughs> no, I like that approach. And I think, I mean, I, I really love to eat and I'm the same as you, but I feel like you've got such a solid fitness routine. I mean, that's, that's six <sighs> days a week. That's well, great. I try. I try. It doesn't always hit the six days. Sometimes it just goes. Four, but at least, at least I get in four days a week. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's well. just, it's, and it's not even just for like physical like looks or, f- or fitness, I think it's more my mental health. Um, I, I kind of switch off when I when I train, um, which is good. Like, because I'm always thinking, always thinking, oh, what should I do next? No, 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 no. There's so many, there's a million and one things to do. But when I'm in the gym, I just don't think about it, which is good. It's good for my health. Yeah, it's great. It's like meditation. It is. <laughs> yes. Yeah, yeah. I love that. Now, I've got the final three questions for you, okay. Di. So here they are. What drives you? What drives me? Um... What drives me is when I can't get something. <laughs> when I know that, um, I, I think I think what really drives me is if 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 I if I really want something, I I will do it. Yeah, pressure pressure drives me. I work so well under pressure. It's amazing. Um, if if I have like if you give me a task and you say, hey, I need this in five months, be sure that I won't do it until the last month. <laughs> but if you gave me a task and say, hey, I need this in a week, I will focus my whole entire week on doing that. So I think for me, it's 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 pressure. Um, I like working. I like I I I know that I. I don't work well on long projects. So if like there's something that takes too long, I get so distracted. I get distracted really. And that's just me. I can never change that. So I need to do things and like I need to have momentum. Once I lose that momentum, it's really hard to get back. It's like working out. Yeah. Once I lose that momentum of working out, I can go for like a week and just like be like super chill and not do anything. But then I can also be like, oh my God, I have to get this done every day, every day. So I think that's what drives me. So getting pressure. on that routine of like yeah. constantly working towards yeah. something. Yeah. yeah. And like knowing that I have to achieve that in a certain amount of time or I can't get that, I want to get it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. 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 Amazing. I love that. It's so <laughs> self-driven. I love it. Now, if you had to redo or relive something in your life oh. and do it differently, what would it be and why? Oh, wow. That's a good question. I always say this like... I probably would have never done accounting. I, I probably would have never done Bachelor of Commerce in uni. I, I actually never. Re, I never really enjoyed uni, to be honest. I enjoyed the social side of things. I enjoyed like you know meeting all the friends that I made. Um, but I don't think I truly enjoyed spending four years doing what I did at uni. So if I could, and it's all well in. <laughs> It's all well and good saying that because it's it's kind of helped me like later on in my career now, right? So, but if maybe, I don't know, I always question like what would I have done or what would I be if I did another, something that I truly love? Like I really wanted to do architecture. My mom didn't allow me to do it. <laughs> so I always wonder like, would I have aced it and would I be like one of the top architect fir- architectural firms in Australia or, or you know, where would I be if I did that? So, yeah, I maybe would have liked to have gone back to that part of my life, like 18, 19, and just sort of see where, where would I have gone if I did something different and how would it have changed my career and my life moving forward. Yeah, 
I, I know people hate me asking that question because it's like, no, I understand that what I've done has gotten me to where I am yeah. now. But I, I, I agree. I feel like that 18-year-old age, it's mm. such a pivotal moment, isn't it, it is. when you leave school that, yeah, exploring something Because different. different people have different stages in life where they like or don't like. Like, I, I definitely didn't like uni because I did something that I really never liked. Mm. However, it's led me to what I... I, I took a, a, the, the biggest turn in my life and then doing something that I couldn't love more now. But would I have done that if I... Didn't, ha- did, yeah. didn't go through the part that I didn't yeah. like, you know. Yeah. Maybe I would have still loved, like, if I did architecture, maybe I'd be, like, you know, doing so well yeah. and I loved it. And I'd be like, why food? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Yeah. That's the thing where I always ask myself. Yeah. Hmm. No, but that's so interesting. Architecture, I like that. So my final question for you is, what is the biggest lesson you have learned in your life so far? Biggest lesson? The biggest lesson is, I think, for me, it's um, truly backing myself Often, you know, it's so it's so hard. Like when you're doing something that is so out of the norm, you question yourself a lot. And don't get me wrong, I still do have that moments where I question myself. But then I always think back to this moment, right? This one moment where I was in MasterChef, and it was the it was a service challenge. It was the uh, semi-finals. I've never felt like this in my life, right? I always think back to this moment, um, and. I basically did this three-course three meal, two-course meal, two-course meal. And I was like feeding 40 people or whatever it was. And I had to do it all on my own. And I loved that challenge so much because I pushed myself to the limit. I pushed myself further. And regardless of what people told me, and I remember like having Shannon Ben saying like, Di, this is way too much for you to do. I was a freaking machine. But at that time, I knew that nothing could stop me because I was just like, I was going to back myself and I knew that I could do it. I tested it. I knew I could do it. The only thing that would get to me was the nerves. So I tried to be super calm and just forget about everything else and just get the shit done. Like that was me. That was me. So from then on, I always learned like I need to back myself because no one knows me better than I do. It's like listening to your body. Every time I get like this pain and niggle, I'm like, I know, and I know there's something. And so it's just, I think it's just trusting yourself. Yeah. So that's one of my biggest lessons. From then on, I've learned to trust myself. Trust yourself. I love that so much. Yeah. And I feel like I feel like we all have moments like that where we totally. just don't, right? And we, and we just, like you said, you question and yeah. but you've, you, yeah, you have to remember. It's trusting yourself but not being overconfident. It's good to have confidence but not overconfident to a point where you don't have. I always say like you, if you've got nothing to back yourself then, and you're just being confident, then it's also kind of pointless because yeah. if you literally are so bad at what you do and like you're still doing it, then there's something wrong there with the <laughs> matrix. So yeah. maybe you need to go back and revisit or, you know. But if you know that you're good at it and you've done it before, then it's just it just comes down to like, just you're calming yourself and, and just trusting your, 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 your gut, right? Yeah, trusting pretty your much gut. it. Yeah, yeah, I love that so much. Well, I have absolutely loved this chat. Thank you so much for being <laughs> on the show. It's been so fun talking about all of these things with you. So where can people find you and all your amazing work? Because you've got a lot of things going yeah. on. So where's the best place to find all your stuff? Um, well, I've got a website. So it's dianachan.co or um, alternatively on Instagram, um, Diana. .chan.au um, and I, you know, I basically, I, I post daily um, unless I really don't have the time to do so. <laughs> but yeah, I always give people updates on what I do, where I'll be, what I'm working on. Um, there's always new and exciting projects in the pipeline. So yeah. Yeah, amazing. So we'll pop all of those links up in the show notes, guys. So make sure you check it out. Tell us what you loved and learned from this episode by leaving a rating and review over at Apple Podcast. Screenshot this episode, tag us and share it to your socials. Thank you again, Di, for being on the show. And thank you guys for listening. We'll catch you next time on the Rachel J Podcast. 